There is a dynamic in the human psyche that longs for reversal. We would like life to change direction. Ironically enough, that's what repentance means. It's not really overwhelming shame. It just means changing direction. And during Lent, we evaluate the road we're going and if we need to go a different direction. But as we observe life, there are a lot of injustices that incur in life. And when it does, we would love to see a role reversal. When it comes to injustice, whether we're watching TV or the news, whether we're reading a novel, by the time we get to the end of that segment, we want to see the good guys win and the bad guys lose. And we develop a language for that, a rhetoric for that. Boy, I would like to see them get theirs. We use language like that. And I would like to call that the rhetoric of role reversals. As we come to Esther chapter 9 this morning, we're going to see a lot of rhetoric of role reversals. This dynamic starts when we are quite young. How many of you remember your arch rival on the playground? I think all of us have had those times where we have butted heads with other uh, young people that we went to school with. And when we were in elementary school, when we were on the playground, some people actually got into fistfights over various things, but usually it was more verbal than anything else. Most of us actually used verbal altercations to get the job done. How many of you remember this one? I'm rubber, and you're glue. Everything you say bounces off me and sticks onto you. And so when an individual called you an idiot, nope, nope, it bounced off me and it sticks onto you. So we got wise to that, and we began to say, you're beautiful, you're smart, because it bounces back to you. One of the things that has changed over the course of the years is the nature of trash talk. And what we find is, as we grow old, it becomes more sophisticated. So we will use things like satire and parody. Sometimes what we find ourselves doing is wanting to have the last word. Now, all of these things that I am saying right here pertain to Esther chapter 9. In fact, it occurs quite often in the Bible. And when it happens, it is subject to exaggeration and intimidation. Now, many of the things that we read in the Bible are expressions of the human spirit in an effort to get on top and to stay there. Many times in our efforts, we try to make the Bible simply a divine book. And that won't work because there's a lot of human elements to it. It's produced by human beings with all the qualities of those schoolyard bullies. Here's what I mean. The story of Esther is a story of reversals. Think about it for a moment. There was Queen Vashti, and she is replaced by Queen Esther. There is Haman, who is replaced by 
Mordecai. What we find is two decrees begin to take place in the book. The first one by Haman to uh, exterminate the Jewish people. But by the time you get to the end of the book, there's a second decree written by Mordecai that actually is trying to exterminate the enemy of the Jews. Now, this is the last day we'll be using the chessboard as our metaphor. And we have been using the chess game as an example of various components in the book of Esther. One last one today. When you play the game of chess, there is a move that is called the swindle. The swindle is a ruse that is played by the individual that's losing the game to trick the other opponent into making a move that he or she ultimately does not want to make, thereby achieving the win. So a swindle can only happen when the one player with the advantage makes a mistake. Now in Esther chapter 9, there are some things in that chapter that are reported that should make us very uneasy. It is a swindle that is way over the top. Esther collaborates with King Ahasuerus to provide a solution for that decree by Haman that wants to exterminate the Jewish people. So this second decree that is written by Mordecai here is the swindle. It is that which is way over the top so that it will intimidate the opponent and eventually cause them to back down from that first decree. Now there are some numbers that are stated here in Esther chapter 9 that are quite staggering. When this second decree is implemented by Mordecai and the rest of the Jews, by the time you get to the end of this second day, what we find is there are 500 men that are killed. The 10 sons of Haman are executed. The second day, there are 75,000 people that are killed. And if that's not enough, there's another 300 on top of that. My goodness gracious. So what we have is 75,000 810 people in this chapter alone that are executed. Now, does that make you uncomfortable? It does me. What is this chapter trying to do? So what we are observing is a complete reversal of fortunes for the nation of Israel. The Jewish people who were to be annihilated end up being the victors, and that's what is celebrated in the Feast of Purim. We'll talk a little bit about that as we end this study next week. All of this happens through this strange tale of reversal. And what we find is where there are reversals, there is the providence of God that's at play as well. I came across an old saying this week that seems to fit. It says, a coincidence is a miracle in which God prefers to remain anonymous. God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. But he anonymously seems to put all the pieces into place, including this last decree that is the swindle on those that are persecuting the Jews. 
Now, this seems to be the point of the book. And what we find is that there's a lot of tension that is still in the book as you come to the end. When we get to the end of the book, what we find is this chapter potentially could have been a later edition. So we've been talking a little bit about that, and if you go back to our first Wednesday night study online and go to our podcast, what you'll find is that there are some apocryphal books that supplement the story. Now this chapter seems to be a later edition as well, and so it is supplementing the story because really by the time you get to the end of chapter 8, the story of the threat against the people seems to be coming to a close. The people are feasting and celebrating, and uh, the people are living in fear of the Jewish people because Mordecai is now second in power. However, there is still what is needed to provide the institution of the festival of Purim. So chapter 9 will tell us how victorious, how victorious the Jewish people are on these couple of days. So this great theme of reversal is joined to the rhetoric that goes with it. In other words, the Jews got their enemies in their grasp. They were able to overcome the odds. Now, in this chapter, there's a lot of locker room talk. There is a lot of over-the-top language. And I don't know why this came to my mind this past week. It just did. Part of that old song from the 70s by Jim Croce, you remember, You Don't Mess Around with Jim? There is the reversal of fortune of two men in that story. So it's a ballad. This is a narrative. But in You Don't Mess Around with Jim, do you remember... Uptown's got its hustlers, Bowery's got its bums, 42nd Street got Big Jim Walker, he's a pool-shooting son of a gun. And he deceives people and cons people and takes their money. But the tagline is, you don't tug on Superman's cape, you don't spit into the wind. You don't pull the cap of the, don't pull the mask of the old Lone Ranger, and you don't mess around with Jim, right? Nobody messes with Jim until there's this South Alabama country boy looking for a man named Jim. He's a pool shooting boy by name of Willie McCoy, but down home they call him Slim. He says, I'm looking for the king of 42nd Street. He's driving a drop-top Cadillac. Last week he took all my money, and it may sound funny, but I come to get my money back, and everybody say, Jack, don't you know? Don't tug on Superman's cape, don't spit into the wind, don't pull the mask off the Lone Ranger, and you don't mess around with Jim. So the, finally, the third stanza says, a hush fell over the pool room. Jimmy came bopping in off the street, and when the cutting was done, the only part that wasn't bloody was the soles of the big man's feet. Yeah, he was cut in a hundred places and shot in a couple more. And you better believe, and here is the line. Here is the line that is the rhetoric of reversal. They sung a different kind of story when Big Jim hit the floor. So it goes on to the, the chorus again. And then the last verse says, yeah, Big Jim got his. Find out where it's at. 
It's not hustling people strange to you, even if you got a two-piece custom-made pool cue. Yeah, you don't tug on Superman's cape. You don't spit into the wind. You don't pull the mask off the old Lone Ranger. But the last line is you don't mess around with Slim. It's changed. That is the role reversal rhetoric of a ballad song. So what does that have to do with Esther chapter 9? Many of the battle reports in the Bible are used as propaganda to gather support and strike fear into the heart of their adversaries. In other words, it's a swindle. In addition to exaggerating the extent of their victories, the ancients often embellished the numbers of the dead as well. So let's think through this chapter. So in verses 1 through 11, the time has come for Haman's decree to be enacted. Mordecai has a countering decree, so you have these two decrees butting heads. In verses 1 through 11, we see that the fear of their enemies were due in part to the fact that Haman is now dead. He's out of the way. However, in the midst of feasting, there is fighting. So in verses 12 through uh, uh, 19, what you find are some numbers. Let me read a couple of things here. It says, The number of those slain in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? It will also be granted. So the king will say to Queen Esther, is there anything else that you need done? So there have been here these 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman have been killed but that's not enough. She requests another day of battle. Well, that goes beyond the decree. Do you see what I'm saying? And so on that second day of battle, which she requests, she says this, verse 13, if it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow and let Haman's ten sons, ten sons rather, be hanged on gallows. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they hanged the ten sons of Haman. And the Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now that's an interesting tagline. And it goes back in the history of the Jews where the Amalekites and the Jewish people are fighting one another in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And in that particular battle, God told King Saul to kill everything, the men, the women, and the uh, livestock, the children too. But King Saul didn't do that. He kept all of the best uh, livestock for himself. So Samuel will come along and tell King Saul God is going to remove you from your kingship because you did not listen to what he said. Now, in this text here, there's this battle that goes on, but this time, instead of destroying everything, they didn't take any of the plunder. So it's almost as if, in this rhetoric, it's trying to show that they still have a heart. Now, 
Think about that for a moment. Is there any heart in this? Listen, verse 14. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa. They hanged the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 16, meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews that are outside the city of Susa, who were in the king's provinces, also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies, and they killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. There's that second tagline again. Okay, you've killed 500, you've killed 10 sons of Haman, you've killed 300, now you've killed outside the city of Susa 75,000 people, but we didn't touch the livestock. What on earth is going on here? Well, amidst the fighting and the feasting, the book of Esther ends with this violent rendition of this act of self-defense, supposedly. But the ending of this Purim story, while it certainly can be read as a legitimate battle of self-defense, and that's the way most traditional Bible commentators take it, I think there's a couple of things that don't add up in my mind. First of all, the sheer number of deaths is shocking. Surely, self-defense would not require the killing of that amount of people. So, you only have two days, and you have over 75,000 800, I think it was, and 10 people that have been killed. Even in modern warfare, that's astounding. Secondly, there is little suggestion elsewhere that Haman's feelings toward the Jews reflected the rest of the population. So Haman hated Mordecai, and he hated the Jews, and he wanted to get rid of them. But is that the way all the people felt? Don't know. Thirdly, if other citizens of Susa planned to participate in the slaying of the Jews, they were presumably doing it out of obedience to the king's edict. But the first edict has been replaced with the second one. So why would they carry that out? Now, here's my best guess as what's going on in this chapter. My best guess is this is how God allows his children to tell the story. In other words, there is a tendency in the biblical writers to let the people tell the story within their custom and their culture. In their custom and in their culture, it's not unusual for an exaggeration because it's serving their political purposes. Now, let's go back to the schoolyard again. So when we are in fisticuffs with somebody else when we were young on the playground, do you remember your mama type things? I don't even remember some of them, to tell you the honest truth, because some of them were quite lame, you know, your mama wears combat boots. Well, here we are in the 21st century, and mamas really do wear combat boots. So what type of <laughs> slander is that? Well, back in the 70s, I guess it was an insult. Or your mama is so big, she, when she sits around the house, she sits around the house. I mean, how stupid are those comments, right? Well, I think children probably have gotten a little bit more 
terse in the way they say some of these things now. But think about it for a moment. Those kids that are on the playground are speaking only from their own perspective. So another dynamic on the playground is to lift up maybe your dad. Maybe in the eyes of a young child, dad is the greatest and he can lift a thousand pounds type thing. But as children get older, they begin to be more realistic. They begin to understand both their strengths and their shortcomings, and that includes their parents and their siblings as well. And life becomes more sophisticated and more complex, and it's not as easy as casting all people into a lump description. In other words, we become more mature. In the Old Testament, you have kind of an immature way of portraying certain things, but it's all moving toward Christ, a more mature understanding. So the son of someone that's on the playground, all he has when he's young is the experiences and his knowledge base is only so big. But as he becomes a teenager, or perhaps he gets married and becomes a father himself, he begins to understand the complexities of the world and he begins to understand that there are not simple explanations. So what we're finding in Esther at the end of this book is a unique mode of writing that exaggerates. And as it exaggerates, the one thing it's trying to do is intimidate other people. It's highly unlikely that 75,000 people were killed in one day. The narrator here cares about appearance because appearance is the symbol of intimidation. We need to keep in mind that this whole book has been about reversals. And in order to have a decree look the complete reversal of Haman's decree, you need to often embellish certain things. So what we find here is the confidence of the reversal that gives hope for tomorrow. In other words, if there are other empires that read of this account, they'll think twice about attacking the Jews because the Jews have a hope that is built beyond the moment. They have a hope for tomorrow. And that is the role of reversal often in the scriptures. It's a great tradition. It's an uneven proposition between one side to the other. Only God sees the whole picture, and all we can see is the incremental progress. But think about how the scriptures are written, even into the New Testament. Think about the role of reversal rhetoric of our own faith. Think of some of these passages that we might not give a second thought to. Jesus says, the many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. The rhetoric of role reversal. How about in Luke chapter 1, where you have the great Magnificat, and it says, he has cast down the mighty from their thrones, but lifted up the lowly. The hungry he has filled with good things, but the rich he has sent away empty. The rhetoric of role reversal. Think of the Beatitudes. Blessed are you 
who are now hungry, for you will be satisfied. Role reversal. Blessed are you who are now weeping, for you will laugh. Role reversal. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and they insult you, and denounce you as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice and leap for joy on that day. Behold, your reward will be great in heaven. Role reversal. Or how about this one? I consider that the sufferings of this present time are as nothing compared to the glory to be revealed for us. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Role reversal. Now here's that passage I read earlier. For this, no it's not. Uh, I'll take that back. This is another one in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I misspoke. For this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to what is seen but to what is unseen for what is seen is transitory, but what is unseen is eternal. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. A lot of role reversal occurs in the scripture. And many times it is exaggerated language that allows us to have hope. And that's the purpose of it. So at the end of the book of Esther, what we are finding is in that unique cultural and historical moment, that Esther and the editors of the book of Esther will really do right over the top because this rhetoric gives the assurance of role reversal. In other words, Esther's ending is to encourage the reader that you can bet your bottom dollar on tomorrow. There is a tomorrow for you. In other words, you can trust that God will take you into tomorrow. And that's our takeaway here as well. You see, Purim will become a festival of trust in tomorrow. It will use feasting and costumes and revelry that we'll talk about next week. But the greatest swindle in all of history is the great role reversal in Christ. In other words, violent men and women demanded the death of Jesus. That's what the Passion Week was all about. We see this conflict occurring between Jesus and the religious leaders. But in that storyline, what we find is while Jesus went to the cross and while he died upon the cross, little did his enemies know that he was securing the victory. And here's the passage that I read earlier in the service. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. Listen to the role reversal here. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. Isn't that an interesting insight? But not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Now the rulers of this age, if they had understood it, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. They did not understand that the act upon the cross was the greatest role reversal in history. If they understood it, they never would have killed Jesus. It says then, however, it is written, what no eye has seen and what no ear has heard and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. 
The role reversal is immaturity to maturity. The role reversal is we're killing the Christ to resurrection. Do you see what I'm saying? It's from darkness to light. It's from blindness to vision. Friends, the great role reversal that is found in Christ is that the great swindle of history is that Jesus knew all the moves of all that were moving against God's plan in the world, and yet he was able to secure the victory. And he did so nonviolently. He did so without taking a life. He did so hanging upon a cross. He did so offering forgiveness. And he did so by uttering these words, it is finished. It's finished. The great role reversal has taken place. Now there is salvation rather than sin. Now there's eternal life rather than death. All of this is found throughout the scriptures, the rhetoric of role reversal. And that's the only way I can understand the book of Esther chapter 9. God is working in such a way that he allows his children to tell the story within their own context. But, as he does so, he's moving humanity forward so that we might find maturity in Christ. And all of a sudden, we begin to realize something, maybe that we never realized before, that God is like Jesus Christ. God has always been like Jesus Christ. We didn't always know that, but now we do. Amen.